The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians 5, 13 through 21. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For, those are, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the work of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Margaret Ann, for reading that. So it happened again this week, uh, just on Friday. I went out to my car to take Theo to preschool, and it was doing that thing where it's kind of rain, but it's kind of not rain. It's, it aspires to be snow, but it's not and it's just cold and oppressive, and when you walk through it, you're hunched over as if you're keeping yourself somehow drier by keeping your head down. And I just, I just thought, Ugh, when is this over? When is this over? We're just riding it out, right? Anybody else feeling that way? I mean, we've got the sun shining right now, but I had a friend who used to say that February is the longest month of the year. Um, And it is, it can just be like this thing that you just, it hits and it's gray and it's wet and it's cold, but it's not so cold that it's snowy, it's just gross. And it struck me that I I was in a season, at least when it came to the weather, where I'm just wanting to get on the other side of it, you know? And there's no way to live. It's no way to live from the perspective and 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 the the motivation of just trying to ride out whatever it is that you're in the middle of. And yet, for a lot of people, when, if, if, they would, if they would summarize their spiritual life, it, it wouldn't be that different from that. Just, I'm, just, I'm just waiting for the time when this is all done and we get to go to heaven. And that's not the way... Christian people are called to live. It's not even close to the way Christian people are called to live. In fact, when you look at the testimony of Scripture, when you look at the epistles, when you look at what Paul is saying to the Galatians, when you look at what Jesus was saying to his people, we have work to do. We have things to do. Things that matter. Things that the Lord calls us to be a part of that, are, that have eternal significance and weight. So we're not just killing time. And so when I read a passage like this, it's a passage that says, live by the spirit, not by the flesh. 
Because when you live by the flesh, here are the things that you're going to focus on and the things that you're going to do. And when you live by the Spirit, it's a different way of living. And when we read a passage like this, especially when we get to these last verses where Paul starts to list sins to avoid, sins to not commit, we can go into that frame of thinking that we get with the Bible sometimes when we're like, okay, here's a list of things not to do. Let's just try to write it out and not do them, you know? But when you look at this list in its context, what we see is that it, the reason it matters, the reason it matters that we would pursue holiness and the reason it matters that we would seek to avoid living according to the flesh is because we have work to do. We have things that we're called to be a part of, specifically the one that he names here and what this whole letter has been getting at as an undercurrent is we are called to love and serve other people in this life. And if we're called to love and serve other people, we can't do that if the primary method of living that we're committed to is focused on loving and serving ourselves. And so I want to frame as we get into this this way because we're about to talk about some things that scripture tells us don't do that. But I want us to have a bigger view of this list than just these are things God doesn't like, try to avoid them because he gets upset. Instead, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about how freedom in Christ is given to us because there's a way we're meant to live. When we're called to live in freedom, we talked about this last week, that Christ does not set us free to just go do whatever we want. When we're free in Christ, what it means is we're free to live as we were intended to live. And that is in face-to-face -face relationship with a holy God. And if we are then free to live in a relationship as we were meant to with a holy God, it follows that we are to avoid living in unholy ways. And so this list is not random. It's not arbitrary. It's, it's, it's what it looks like to live in a holy way before a holy God versus living according to the flesh in an unholy way. And the way Paul frames this part of the letter is important for us to see because he's not simply saying, choose good conduct over bad. He's saying... Christian people, we have the spirit of the Lord living inside of us. And yet we're stuck in this inner conflict, this, this tug of war between walking according to the flesh and walking according to the spirit. And what Paul is saying here is the way that works itself out practically is in how you treat other people and how you regard other people. And so he summarizes the heart of the discussion here as being centered on loving our neighbors. That's the work we have to do. That's what we, we contribute to the society that we live in. We contribute to the relational tenor of our world. We contribute to the health of a community. We contribute to standing up for justice and equality and treating people with dignity. We contribute to those things. But when we're walking by the flesh, the only thing that we're really concerned about is ourselves and satisfying our own appetites. And we, we live in a time right now, right, that says if you have an appetite, 
that appetite brings with it a right for you to satisfy it, as long as nobody gets hurt in the process. Is that the best we can do when it comes to how we, how we think about how we're going to live? Is as long as nobody gets hurt, then I am entitled, and in fact, my flourishing really depends on me satisfying every appetite that comes my way. When we live this way, Paul says, you end up not loving each other. Instead, you end up biting and devouring one another and you end up becoming fodder for the same thing to happen to you. The way scripture calls us to regard our flesh is we're to regard our flesh as crucified. We're to show it no pity, right? So so we're not to have any deference for favorite sins. We recognize they need to die. And we're to understand that there will be pain involved in the death of those sins because renouncing sins that we have grown affection for is painful. And then we leave it decisively to die. It's crucified. It's as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Right? One of the ways we die to self is by pursuing living in a way that doesn't do violence to others. And Paul gives us a list of some of these these things that we're called to do. Uh, And then he warns, he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we have to read that that, that scripture through the, we have to read that statement through the lens of the rest of scripture, right? Because Paul is saying, those who do things on this list will not inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul is not saying is if you commit one of these sins, you're out of the running for eternal life. It can't be because that's not what Jesus modeled. That's not what the disciples achieved in life. That's not even what Paul achieved in his own life. He refers to himself as the chief of sinners. We know that sinful acts are the result of sin nature. And because we know that, and it's not the other way around, that our sinful acts are what gives us a sin nature. We know that certain sins don't carry a greater penalty before God than others because all sin is rebellion against him. Now, some sin carries different consequences in this life than others, but it's not that I can commit one sin and God will say, that is that's just worse than the other sin you committed because it's all an affront to him. So Paul can't be saying these sins in this list that we're about to unpack are, are, are the magic bullets that will kill your soul if you touch them. Instead, what he's doing is he's speaking to a lifestyle. He's speaking to willful, ongoing, unrepentant conduct that is clearly outside the boundary of God's will and yet practiced willingly within the community. So he's saying this is not the way Christian people live. And when we look at the sins that Paul mentions here, They fall into a few categories. Sexual sin, idol worship, divisive conduct, and a lack of self-control. So those are the four categories, and we're going to get into them here in a minute. But remember, just as he highlighted the importance of living in a way that is loving toward our neighbors, this, this list is very much about that. It's very much about how to live in a way that is loving toward the Lord and toward our neighbors. And so I want to unpack these a little bit. The first, sexual sin. I want to talk about this um, because Paul talks about it here in Scripture. And what he says is he says, sexual immorality is an act of the flesh. 
as are impurity and sensuality. These are things that were practiced in private, but also practiced in public temples as a part of Roman culture. The historic biblical sexual ethic, what we embrace at Christ Presbyterian Church, that sexual intimacy is meant to be between one man and one woman in the context of marriage, um, that's, the, that's the position that we embrace, that's the position I embrace. You deserve to know where I as a pastor stand on that issue because you, we, we can't assume these things about each other, right? We can't assume where people stand. So that's where I am on that and that's where our church is. And we believe scripture is teaching and this is part of it, that's, that sexual immor- immorality is everything outside of that. And we believe that this historic sexual ethic is God's design for the flourishing of the church. And we also believe that it is the church's future, that it will remain the ethic of the church. In our culture, this historic sexual ethic, which is the prevailing interpretation of Scripture since the foundation of the church, is considered offensive by many. And I have to tell you that even in the process of writing this sermon, I've been anxious. I've been anxious because I haven't said much from this pulpit to this congregation about this topic. Now, we're the PCA. We're we're a Presbyterian church. We're a conservative church with a high view of Scripture. Our positions are pretty clear. We've made known our positions on a variety of things. Right? You don't have to hunt very hard to figure out where we stand. Yet at the same time, complicated, and the reason it's complicated is because as Christians we are called through the Lord's grace to uphold biblical morality in our own lives, but we have to do it with great humility because the church has used moral positions to marginalize and actively hate people whose sin, though it may be different from theirs, is no less contrary to scripture, right? So I'm talking to you about sexual morality and I'm a person who eats too much, right? So I have sin in me. I'm not a portrait of consistency. And none of you are either. But scripture has so much to say about our moral conduct and more importantly, God has a right to speak into that. And so as a pastor with a high view of scripture, I feel temptation to avoid the subject of sexual morality or to be coy about it or just not bring it up. Because I don't want people thinking that because I hold to the historical biblical ethic of sex between one man and one woman in the context of marriage, that I'm a narrow-minded or hateful or repressed or perfect person because I don't believe I'm any of those things. But what I am is I'm somebody who is bound by my conscience, by my ordination vows, by scripture, to uphold the teachings of scripture to the best of my ability with the Spirit's help. And that means that I'm bound to yield my preference to avoid conflict to the word of God. I'm also an imperfect man who sins and cannot find any area of my life that is totally devoid of hypocrisy. We are all 
hypocrites. I about said the word wrong. We're all hypocrites. But here's the thing about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy does not... nullify the word of God. Because 100% of God's people profess faith in a way of living that they all fail to live up to does not mean that God's word is flawed. In fact, it means that God's word is speaking right to the heart of the issue. That apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, I cannot live a righteous life. I can't. The only righteousness that I can live by is the righteousness of Christ. And so God calls us to surrender our sexuality to him. And he has a right as our creator to command how we use our bodies. And we see this throughout scripture. I'm gonna mention some, because I don't wanna just say we see this throughout scripture and then not tell you where. And yet at the same time, I don't have near enough time to read it all. So I'm going to list them. They'll be on the podcast. And you can also come up here and see these notes if you want them. But we see this in scripture, Matthew 5, 28. This is the biblical view of sexuality. Mark 10, 6 to 9, Romans 1, 24 to 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 20, and also 7, 1 to 5, Colossians 3, 5 to 8, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 7, Hebrews 13, 4, and then this passage here as well, just to name a few. Not long ago, I was at a, uh, I went with a friend of mine who was invited to um, participate in a debate. It was a two-person debate with a moderator, and the debate was over the role of homosexuality in the church. And so my friend was a conservative PCA pastor, and he was kind of representing the evangelical conservative viewpoint. And the other person there was an Episcopal priest who was gay, whose husband was in the room. Um, and they were going to have this discussion. And it was put on by a uh, kind of a liberal mainline church, And it was a fascinating thing to listen to because, and it gave me a lot of of hope because because it felt like the reason that people were there was because they really wanted to understand where the other side was even coming from. But at the end of it, the moderator asked this question to both ministers. This is the last question. I want you to answer, what would you say is the strongest argument the other side makes for their view? So the conservative pastor went first, and here's what he said. He said, we evangelicals have done a very poor job in loving well same-sex attracted people. We've been inhospitable. We've been unkind. We've often made it so those who differ with us find no welcome, even when they're struggling. And if we don't have love, then we're just a clanging gong. The liberal priest, when he was asked, he said this. He said, The conservative's strongest argument is that they have the testimony of Scripture on their side. You can make a cultural and even a religious argument supporting homosexuality as a lifestyle, but you can't make a biblical one. So you have to decide which voice carries the most weight. And I thought that really got to the heart of it, right? Is what is the voice that carries the most weight? And you may say, actually, there's a lot of scholarship that says that the Bible supports this. Not scholarship that's taken seriously by scholars on either side of the line. And it's all scholarship that's only happened in the last 75 years. 
of the existence of the church. But what Paul is saying is, listen, the tension between walking in step with the spirit and the flesh is not a small thing. It's not a small difference. They oppose each other. And this applies to sexual morality too. Moral conduct carries an incredible capacity to wound people. And scripture calls us to take that seriously. Idol worship. This is the second. I'll be more brief on these other three, but idolatry and sorcery, uh, he mentions here. This is another category that would have been looked at in a particular way uh, in the Roman Empire, sorcery and idolatry, but it it remains very much in play uh, for us today still, doesn't it? I mean, our idols may be things like money and power and sex and fame and family rather than bowing before statues of Athena and Zeus. And our sorcery might be trying to control and predict the future through manipulation and money and reputation, but we're still prone to follow after other gods and worship at the altar of self. Tim Keller said that he said all sin, underneath, the sin underneath all sins, the motive for our disobedience is always a lack of trust in God's grace and goodness and a desire to protect and guard our own lives through self-salvation. But when we live this way, trying to obtain self-salvation through control, we hurt others in the interest of protecting and promoting ourselves. So see, these things are not just a random list, but they're things that when we pursue them, we do so at the cost of loving others well. Divisive conduct, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. These are things that very much are in play today. We have constructed social media platforms to host all of them, right? In, in, in general, except in cases where principles of scripture are at stake, we're called to live peaceably with one another. And yet, it's a free-for-all out there when it comes to just biting and devouring and tearing people down, and it happens within Christian Twitter, right? And <laughs> within Christian Facebook. It happens in here. And so... I want to ask the question about your own, and I, you, you guys have heard me do this a number of times. I'm going to keep doing it because half the world is on social media. And so I just want us to keep accountability for ourselves. And I want to ask this question. Are you somebody who loves to enter into the fray? Do you love the fight? Do you love to lash out at people who differ with you? Do you love just slam dunking on somebody who says the dumbest thing and you're able to just tear it apart so easily? Scripture is saying that conduct is not an exercise of the spirit. It's an exercise of the flesh and it rots the soul. So let's be mindful of that because these things on this list are not things, as I said, that God just gets upset about. They're things that divide. And then finally, a lack of self-control. Drunkenness and orgies are, and things like these. What a great catch-all that phrase is, and things like these, Right? Because this means you can't look at this list and say, I'm so glad that my favorite sin isn't on this list. Because it is, it's right there. Things like these. 
It's a great catch-all. It tells us that just because something isn't on this list doesn't mean it's not included. But drunkenness and orgies are pictures of, of they conjure images of a, la- a lack of self-control, right? You're losing all control of ourselves and being at the whim of external influences. In the next few verses that we're going to talk about next week, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. One of them is self-control. But in each of these categories of walking according to the flesh, sexual immorality, idol worship, divisive conduct, and a lack of self-control, there's a counterpart that looks like walking in step with the Spirit. What does that look like? And I'm closing with this. It looks like a morality that looks like cherishing the dignity of all people, not regarding them as objects of gratification, but seeing them as people made in the image of God and worthy of all dignity and honor, where we fight for their flourishing. It looks like a posture of worship that seeks the presence of the Lord in scripture and prayer and is teachable and correctable and eager to learn and eager to grow and seek the flourishing of others in in those same things. It looks like an attitude of peace and generosity and humility and support and collaboration with others. We don't see others as obstacles to our progress, but we see them as people God may bring into our lives to help us or people he may bring into our lives so that we can help them. And greater love has no man than this. Jesus said that he laid down his life for his friends. We pray and act for the flourishing of others. And then finally, it looks like self-control. We don't insist on some unhelpful notion that our right to satisfy every appetite or desire that comes our way is something nobody ever better mess with. But instead, we walk a steady course of deferentially loving others. When we read lists like this, when we see how the Spirit means to mature us, he means to mature us by turning our favor away from conduct that separates us from God and each other and turning us to ways of living that promote the flourishing of others. Christ is after our hearts. And so I pray that the Lord would give us the humility to lay down our right to ourselves and to follow him in the way of giving ourselves away for the sake of loving others in his name because that's what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we are able to read a letter like Galatians and to uh, read the mail of the Apostle Paul to this church that was struggling to understand how to walk uh, as followers of Christ. Lord, I thank you that that word applies to us too, uh, that it is living and active for us. And it is a letter that is reminding us again and again in all these different ways that, that we have work to do, uh, that we have, we have a mission, we have a way we're supposed to live and contribute. We're not just killing time, but we are part of your redeeming work in this world by living as your church, by living as your people, as people who are called uh, to, to care for and contend for one another. Lord, we know that the church has not done this perfectly, not by a stretch, and yet, in your goodness and in your grace, you still call us to be a part of this. And you are able to prevail over all of our shortcomings, but Lord, I pray 
that you would give us a humility to seek you and to trust you and to trust your leading and to yield to the counsel of your word in our lives and to love people in the process for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.